Hi there, welcome to Active Intelligence. I'm Aaron Ironside. I hope you'll spend the next half an hour or so with me as we take a look at today's issues from a variety of perspectives. The goal of the exercise is balance rather than bias. You'll hear the points of view that you don't always hear on other media broadcasts. Today, it's OK Boomer time. Are the boomers, in fact, to blame for the housing bubble? Let's engage some active intelligence. On today's program, I caught up with Brooke Turner from Vision West. He's the head of the Service Development and Partnerships Division of Vision West, and they deal with this housing crisis in the many forms in which we find it. Of course, for most Kiwis, it's just simply the issue of home ownership, and it doesn't seem to matter which generation you belong to. It seems like it's perpetually out of reach. My wife and I bought a house for 50000 in 1985 and did it up. We used this as leverage to buy other properties in the 90s. I've been at my job for 35 years now. I've had to work night shifts, weekends and holidays so we could pay off loans. We still have a mortgage which I was hoping not to have going into retirement. I guess we were the lucky generation with affordable homes, but it still took hard work, sacrifices, a lot of risk and worry. Many people my age have moved back in with my family to pay off my student loan and save for a house. I'm lucky enough that my parents don't charge me rent, but it's still difficult. Houses in Auckland dramatically increase in value each year. It seems like I'm always further behind. My friends who have bought houses have all got married and then bought outside Auckland. I'm determined not to give up on the Kiwi dream yet. So it doesn't matter if you're a boomer or a millennial, although of course for millennials the problem is far, far more challenging. How will they ever get into the housing market to begin with? And why is the housing bubble continuing to expand even in a global pandemic? It's the kind of expansion that has caught the attention of news services like Al Jazeera. Tell it to you. Welcome to Freeman's Bay. $2.4 million. Another quick, successful auction results in another high-priced sale in New Zealand's largest city, Auckland. Oh, we've been looking for probably four or five months. It's pretty crazy. Um, prices have gone up a lot in the last sort of six months or so. So it's trying to get a handle on where prices are at was probably the, the first part of the, our journey. In fact, those prices have surged more than 20% in the last year. Among the 37 nations that make up the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, New Zealand has the most unaffordable housing market. The New Zealand government has taken steps to cool the market, but there are limits to how far it will go, because a strong, buoyant property sector is good for the economy. And in the middle of a global pandemic when so many other industries, like tourism, are struggling, the government will take what it can get. In New Zealand, the property boom is exacerbating a wealth gap that was already widening at an alarming rate. Not only is there a shortage of housing at the top end, further boosting prices, but there isn't enough emergency or state-funded long-term housing to help those at the other end. The government is trying to catch up with demand, but there are more than 22,000 people on a growing waiting list for social housing. Some experts believe New Zealand needs to rethink what housing means. We view housing very much as a commodity. It's something that can be bought, sold, traded, instead of a social good. When we think about housing, we really need to start thinking about housing as something that's critical for people's well-being, for people to function, for people to thrive in communities. 
The Treasury is predicting a sharp slowdown in price growth, but at the moment, the only people who appear to be thriving are those already on the property ladder. $1.9 million. Appreciate the offering, sir. Welcome in. Wayne Hay, Al Jazeera, Auckland. So it's certainly newsworthy, this housing bubble that seems to expand and expand. The government, of course, has tried mostly to address this issue at the demand level. And that's why we've all learned phrases like LVR, the loan to value ratio. And now, of course, it's the debt to value ratio that seems to be the concern of the banks. But is the energy being put in the wrong place? Well, Leonard Hong has written a very interesting report that says that actually this housing bubble more likely to be the tip of the iceberg. Well, uh, we've had the housing crisis for like a number of years, right? And my point of the report is to say that, look, in the long run, this is bound to get worse. This is just the tip of the iceberg because population aging is going to increase housing demand uh, than more than we thought. But aren't we making progress? I mean, there's been a unitary plan in Auckland, which when I look at my street, there used to be one house over there, now there's three. There used to be one house over there, now there's a mini tower. I mean, we are building more houses where there used to be one, there's now more. Yeah, well, Stats in New Zealand did say that this is a peak that we haven't seen um, since the 1970s, right? But the problem is that in proportion to population, um, we have 5.1 million people now. Back then, we had 3 million people. Hmm. Um, but but, but we have, we've, what have we built? 39,000 houses, 37,000 houses in the year before? That We've got the numbers now. Yeah, yeah, the numbers are going up, which is a good sign. But like I said, if you look at the, the dwellings per thousand, according to Stats New Zealand, that index was 13.2 in the 1970s. Hmm. Now it's only 7.6. We're only half of that. Okay, so is that because we've got what, a, a big immigration or is it because uh, domestically we've got more population? What is it? No, it's a bit of both. It's, it's both population growth and also population aging. So to make it easier for the listeners, um, I'll just give you an example, right? Let's say there's a nuclear family in the 1970s with five people, right? The parent, the mom, uh, the mom the dad, the three kids, right? What happens 30 years down the line? The three kids move out, they start their own, you know, they have their own partners, they have children, obviously with a lower fertility rate. So that one household in mm. the 1970s by 2000 is turned to four houses, right? Like four I don't households. think this has been taken into account by this government or even the previous one. No, no, they're not. So it's a multiplying effect. Yeah, it is a multiplying effect, right? So that example aggregated out to the whole country. Oh, we're in, we're in the stook. Yeah. We're in the stook. What, what, what's the one thing you do, Dennis? What's the one thing? If you could have a silver bullet today, you could do one thing to solve the housing crisis. Not that it would, but what would the one thing to be? I, th I think the housing market is really complicated for ordinary people to understand normally as well. I mean, I mean there's no silver bullet. There's so many factors. There. One thing. Uh, well... Look, my paper is to highlight the fact that we're severely underestimating the supply and whatever it takes, build, like build more supply because you know, the current government's been tinkering around with demand, you know, LVR, uh, capital gains. We'll do nothing. Yeah, that won't do anything. There are two things that we should be focusing on. One is how can we build more dwellings? And second, how can we incentivize how councils? How can we build more dwellings? One thing the initiative we've been pushing for the last nine years is to say, look, give the GST rebates to council. Give them the incentives to want to build. Leonard Hong went on to point out that there's a very low trust currently between property developers and the local council and the central government for that matter. They all need to get on the same page for there to be any chance of fixing this housing crisis. Well, I caught up with Brooke Turner from Vision West. He's the head of service development and partnerships. And Vision West does an incredible job of helping people with the housing crisis. 
crisis. Of course, the housing crisis, it appears, is in three sections. There's those who are homeless. There are those now who we find ourselves uh, looking at on the telly a lot, those in emergency housing, because we are incredulous that a million dollars a day is being spent on putting people up in hotels permanently. And then, of course, there is this housing bubble that means that ordinary Kiwis can't imagine ever owning their own home. I asked Brooke if these were three separate problems or all part of the same crisis. Well, I guess the first thing, you know, to sort of step back from, you know, the issue of homelessness and the cost of living in New Zealand and really understand that housing and the housing crisis that it's been come to be, be described, I guess, in New Zealand is a wicked problem, which means that it has multiple inputs to it. And um, this is the reason why, you know, people are afraid to tinker with the status quo, because if you if there's major policy changes or major changes in the way that we actually do housing in the country, it actually has a major effect on the way housing is priced or who, who housing is available to. And it's, it's actually a slow burn issue. So maybe um, to understand the issue, if we rewind a few decades, we can understand it a bit better. So um, in our more recent history, in the last 100 years, New Zealand was actually a thought leader on housing. We were very strong in our area of housing. We had an egalitarian base as a country. And from 1946 to 1987, we actually built housing in step with our population growth for all those three groups that you were talking about. We built state housing for those who couldn't afford to have their own housing and found themselves um, on Hardship Street. We built affordable housing for the hardworking Kiwi family. And we built luxury homes for those who were doing well, building um, our number eight wire Kiwi businesses. That all changed in the 1980s when we started opening up to um, globalization and um, what some of your listeners will know as Rogernomics. You know, the fourth Labour government came in and there were major reforms. And look, reform needed to happen because we had an inflation issue, but it happened very, very quickly. And we tinkered with some of those major foundational pieces of legislation and the way that our economy and the way that our infrastructure and the way that a whole bunch of things that we had taken for granted in New Zealand happened. And really from there, um, we've only built one type of housing until this current government came on board at scale. And that is we built luxury large homes for people who were doing well. And what we can see is from 1986 to the present day, we've seen um, property investors and property investment grow by 288,000 homes. So there's 288,000 more rental properties, properties, sorry, owned by mum and dad investors or large business investors now than there were um, 30 odd years ago. And, and effectively that squeezed out the middle. And we can see this in other economies around the world that as inequality grows, you know, you get this acute poverty at the um, at the sharp end of that, and um, that acute poverty is resulting in things like um, a motel class in New Zealand, where today, as we speak, twenty three thousand families are on the housing register. Many of them will be in temporary accommodation, living week to week, and some of them in different motels. So you know, living in different settings each week. And we've got this class of people that 
as Kiwis we go, hey, that's not right. That's not what a motel's for. That's not the um, the country that we think about when we're driving through the desert road and stopping for some lunch at Lake Taupo or, you know, going down to Hamner Springs. That's not that's not our home, but that is the reality. Um, and then we've also got, you know, a wealth class of Kiwis that have really benefited from the lack of supply of housing, the lack of supply of housing across those three groups that you spoke about, and so are now winning big on property, but at the expense of the middle. And so it means that the middle's getting squeezed. And so, you know, we're um, probably for you and I, Aaron, growing up, you know, um, we, we always thought, hey, look, we'll just go and buy our first house. You know, we'll get married, have kids, get into our career, buy our first home. We're now living in an environment where, um, you know, Kiwi kids grow up and go, I'll never own my own home. We're, we're at a tipping point in housing. Um, so that that's a little bit about why where we are. A, a, another thing that we really do need to understand is in understanding um, Titiriti and our ob- obligations under the treaty, um, there have been long-standing um, legislative prejudice against Māori going back decades around housing. And just before when I was saying from 1946 to 1987, how we built housing in step with population growth, we also had government do a range of schemes through those decades that supported Kiwi families into houses, except if you were Māori. So for that entire time, for 40 years, there was actually a prejudice in legislation. And so when we see this Labor government come out with the largest investment in Māori home ownership that we've ever seen, it's actually trying to right that wrong and say, hey, we actually need to tip the balance back in the favour of mana whenua and enable more equity to happen. But we are really at a crisis point now. So anyway, I know that was a long introduction, but that's a little bit about how it is operating as a wicked problem. Hopefully you can hear um, what I'm saying there. Well, here we can see that there are economic forces colliding with cultural and ideological ones. I've heard it said recently that uh, home ownership is something like a human right. I was kind of confused in that I could think to myself that it seemed obvious to me that being able to stay in a home was something that every Kiwi should enjoy, but I wasn't so clear as to whether owning that home was something that everybody had a right to. Where are the rights? Where are the obligations and responsibilities around this? Yeah, it's a very interesting point. I mean, I guess um, the term I've heard is that housing is a right. And I think... um, you know, if we think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I think this is probably where the argument comes from that, you know, people need safety and security and they need food and shelter. And they need those fundamental things to be able to have those um, other opportunities for self-actualization, to be able to realize, you know, our dreams and our aspirations and our purpose in life. We do need some fundamental things. We need to feel safe. We need to feel secure. We need to have housing. We need to have shelter. And we need to be emotionally connected to people who love us. And we need to be able to connect to people who we love. And when you've got those things, you can self-actualize. You can plan for the future. You can think about going to university. You can think about, you know, um, not right now, but, you know, going and exploring the world. Um all those things happen. And I think the argument of housing as a human right comes from the place of saying, you know, without housing, actually 
what's known as um, ontological security begins to break down and ontological security is your security of place. So if you've got housing stability, you have security of place and that means you can build networks and um, the human race is highly networked. We know it in New Zealand, you know, they say there's six degrees of separation. Well, we know in Kiwiana, you know, it's like one or two degrees if you're lucky. And that's where the guy down the street, you know, knows the guy who will sell you your next car and, you know, you, you talk to your neighbour about who he uses as a sparky, but it's also where we get employment and how we connect to um, know where to send our kids to school and, you know, um, what the local um, sort of uh, recreational areas are in our neighbourhood and all those sorts of things. When you take housing away, you actually lose that. And so if we go back to the motel class where they have housing instability, they've lost their ontological security. They're not living in a motel with um, similar neighbours. Their neighbours are changing every week and actually every few weeks they're changing motels. So they've got no ability to build those networks, to build that infrastructure around their lives socially and those psychosocial um, factors that actually help them navigate the world. So I think that's the argument for the right. I think the other argument that comes in that's often said is, look, isn't it about freedom of opportunity? You know, no one um, gets anywhere on a free lunch, you know, like Kiwi spirit is that we're hardworking, you know, like why are we raising benefits? Why are we, you know, building all these masses of state housing when my son can't afford to get a deposit or my daughter can't get into their, her first home and she's a nurse and, you know, she's an essential worker. And those are really valid questions to ask. And I guess with that, the question is, you know, where was the starting line for this family? You know, was the starting line, you know, the parents having home ownership, the parents perhaps being together, you know, the family being together and um, being connected? Um, is, is, that, is the starting line that, you know, the, the income is adequate in that household? Is there any trauma? Is there generational trauma? Is there racism? Um, are there the prejudices that we see? You know, we just saw the apology um, of the dawn raids towards our Pacifica whanau. You know, um, often there's systemic and generational barriers that mean that, you know, our neighbour, who we think just needs to work a little bit harder to get a house, actually has had to overcome so much more than us um, as Pākehā New Zealanders. I'm speaking for myself as, for your listeners who can't see me, I'm white, bald, with a beard and come from privilege. So, you know, just putting that out there. I have not had to face what my Pacifica or Māori contemporaries or have had to face, that they, they have worked much harder to then be on an equal footing with me. And so I think we need to take that into consideration with any argument we make for or against housing as a right. On the other side of that, of course, the one who starts with advantage, who has the home handed down to them and then is able to buy and sell in this very buoyant market, in their sense is, well, hey, why should I be disadvantaged? I mean, after all, you know, good things are happening to me and maybe I'm standing on the shoulders of others who've worked hard. Certainly, you can understand those whose only crime appears to be that their parents owned a house don't feel like it should be their problem to solve. But unfortunately, it then becomes unclear whose problem is this to solve? That's right. And I think um, all we need to do is, and, you know, we 
we, we like to be like, I, I often think of New Zealand like the two old grumpy guys from the Muppets, you know? We're sort of down at the bottom of the world. We're not actually on the stage and we're sort of up in that little um, sort of area that they're in the Muppets, you know, and, and we're critiquing the show. We're critiquing what's happening out there in the world and we're having opinions about it. But I think we forget that we actually belong to this global community sometimes and that all we have to do is look at South Africa and look at the mass inequality in South Africa and where it's going and where, um, you know, that class divide has continued to become larger and larger. And it actually starts breaking down society for all. You know, it starts to actually tear apart the way of life, not just for those who are vulnerable, but for the middle class, for the upper middle, and then for, you know, the rich. And um, so there's actually a, a vested interest for all of us, no matter where we come from and where we sit on the economic ladder, to work together for more equity and for, um, I guess what I'd say would be like a baseline level of, you know, adequate living standards as a nation and when you actually get that and we've got we've got proof of this of development that's happened in in countries over the last years uh, last hundred years you know if we look at the development in china you know china's had a real aim to you know build a middle class and lift people out of poverty we've seen over the last hundred years some of the greatest work done in that country to lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty um, using technology you know with with the will of the country to do that and look i'm not advocating for you know <laughs> for the way that china leads at, at the world per se but what i'm saying is you know countries innately recognize that you've got to approach um the way of life for all of your citizens and that when you are those in power that have decision-making rights you've got to think about all your citizens to be prosperous and if you don't do that over time, even if you just focus on a select group of your citizens, you will start pulling apart the tower and eventually Yertle the Turtle will be toppled. Is this one of those moments where we have to look forward and, and innovate or perhaps one where we look back? Because I had an intriguing conversation with a German man recently. I'd known by contrast uh, that Pacific people, for example, in the islands, you can't uh, purchase land or, uh, or housing that doesn't belong to the family. But I didn't know that it was quite similar in Germany, that houses were handed down multi-generationally. Is it time for us to return to, to old models, old ideas? around home ownership inside the family group or is it the time now for some extreme innovation look i think um it is a real time of exploration and i'd really encourage people to you know think about both in your local context and your family context about what you can be doing around housing i mean you know we've seen um if we think about the spiritual sense for, for a moment um you know henry newen you know great um uh, catholic writer you know, he wrote The Wounded Healer and in 1978, he predicted that like there had been the emergence of the nuclear family, mum, dad and the kids, with the whole world revolving around mum, dad and the kids and the extended whanau of grandparents and aunts and uncles and that sort of more tribal sense of family would be lost and there, was, there would just be the nuclear family where you found identity. He predicted in 1978 that there would be the emergence of the nuclear man, the nuclear individual, 
And, you know, we've seen that happen where your, our identity is individualized. So to your point about going back to the old or the new, like everyone wants their own thing. Like maybe, you know, there's more community living, there's more multi-generational living, there's mum and dad moving into the one bedroom unit that you put onto your backyard and your kids moving into the family home to raise their kids. And is that such a bad thing, you know? Is it such a bad thing that we have more connected communities because we have to live closer together? That can be seen as a really good thing. I also think that we need to look at um, other innovative modes. So, you know, why why can't the government go guarantor on a matching scheme to match your KiwiSaver deposit? You know, if you've got 50,000 in your KiwiSaver deposit and you know you need 75 or 100 to get into your first house, surely they can look at the credit ratings of a whole group of New Zealanders and those who are first home buyers and say, hey, look, that, that this person, they've, they've been contributing into their KiwiSaver for the last seven years, they've got a good deposit, they've got a stable job, you know, um, we're going to guarantor future payments into their KiwiSaver up to this point to get them into a house. You know, we, we can think about the way that we finance housing that way. Um, you know, progressive home ownership, you know, this government has made some announcements about that, but it's still a relatively um, small part of the market. And I think there's huge opportunity for there to be bits of land that council or um, the government own, back to your point, but actually the unit, the house unit can be owned by a family. And so you take out the house cost, sorry, the land cost, and the, the householder only has to hold the house. And that would actually um, mean that you wouldn't get the same kind of gain off that property that you do on a property and land gain. And, but you'd be going for a completely different market of person, you know, people who just want to live in a community, want, don't want to try to make money off housing. They just want a safe, warm, dry house. Like we should be looking at um, experimenting with these types of things. And, you know, tiny homes is another one, you know, massive. You've probably seen it through your Facebook feeds, you know, and got, got a friend who's done a tiny home. I mean, tiny homes are illegal. Every single tiny home that is out there on any piece of property anywhere is illegal. It's there with um, council and government turning a blind eye because we don't have a mechanism to legitimise it. But wouldn't we prefer more and more individuals and pensioners and young people and new marrieds living in tiny homes on our adjacent, you know, backyard or front yard or wherever it may be than in motels. You know, let's get real about this. We're no longer in this old school mouldy caravan world. We're in this world where people are using like, you know, cedar wood and you know, um, shipping containers to convert into these beautiful, like, design-winning homes at a fraction of the cost of what it costs to build a four-bedroom home. So I think that th those sort of innovations are really important. And I do think that, you know, where are the syndicate investments for community as well? You know, like, you know, heaps of us are sitting on masses of equity what happens if we actually, because there's been this demonization of the landlord. I don't like to do that, you know? Um, to your point, Aaron, does everyone need to be a homeowner? No, but a whole group of us that are homeowners, we might be able to put together a scheme where we provide affordable rentals by pooling our equity and pooling our resources for those in our community that we want to support, you know? And it still be an investment long-term, 
but not to the detriment of living standards. So I think there's a whole range of things that we need to be thinking through and looking at, both at the local, at the sort of the regional and at the national level. And one of the things we do really badly in New Zealand, we always point back to government. We love it, don't, don't we? You know, like if we didn't get enough medals in the Olympics, we'd be like, oh, government, you know, they didn't put enough money into high performance sport. You know, our rowers didn't get enough. You know, we love turning, putting, pointing the finger at government. But what are we going to do as, at community level? You know, what are we going to do at a business level? What are we going to do um, at a for-purpose level? What are we going to do in, at a spiritual level as churches? You know, we need to think about all of those things. Brooke Turner from Vision West reminding us that, like all these issues, it's going to take a collaborative effort. It's also going to insist upon us that we stop reducing complex issues down to one feature. And I think that boomers are getting a hard time, particularly because nobody asked to be born a boomer. Nobody asked to be born in a family that had a house or didn't have a house. We don't get to choose which family we're born into or which generation we're born into. But I do think one of the challenges is that our mindset is often very short-sighted. I don't hear many people thinking about how their decisions, how their wealth creation strategy is going to affect future generations. We all seem to be very focused on our needs. Do we have enough money for our retirement is a much bigger question than whether or not we are going to leave an inheritance that will enable our children or grandchildren to ever own a home. I think it's time for us to step back and start to see the bigger picture. We need to start looking at the future in a much longer arc and be less concerned with our prosperity and think, I wonder, what will the prosperity of my grandchildren or great-grandchildren be like based on my decisions? I've seen it written once that it's a wise man indeed who plants a tree that he will not live long enough to sit under the shade of. That's vision when you do something that affects several generations. And we've got to get out of this habit of dealing with now, 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 now. There's a future and some people we haven't met yet who are relying on us to make the right decision. What's your experience of the housing bubble? Have you been able to get into housing? Can you see another way forward? Know some solutions that could work? I know of a friend of ours who rented out their property to some friends and at the end of a year of rental, sold the rental property and refunded the family their rent as a deposit on their first house. There are solutions out there. We're going to have to be creative. I'd like to hear your story. You can visit the website activeintelligence.nz. Don't forget to hit subscribe and then every episode will arrive fresh in your inbox. We'll catch you next time on Active Intelligence. 